Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha and notebook. Let's dive in. Today, I have a special guest. It's Andrea Nakayama. I hope I said that correctly. Um, She is in the chronic illness world. She is an educator and a trainer, and uh, her personal story is just really incredible. She's going to introduce herself, and then we're going to kind of dive into her approach to chronic illness, which I find really unique, and I'm really excited to share with you today. So, Andrea, can you introduce yourself and share your story? How did you get into chronic illness and into helping people get better through it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Marianne. And I'm Andrea Nakayama, as you said, and I'm a functional medicine nutritionist. I'm founder of the Functional Nutrition Alliance, where we do have a virtual clinic, but the primary thing that we do there is train other practitioners in my 10-month training in the science and art of functional nutrition. We've trained over 8,000 practitioners now in over 68 countries. It's really exciting to see how people are recognizing the gaps in healthcare and wanting to fill them with a different scope of practice. So I feel really passionate about that work. While I'm all also turning my attention back to the patient where I started and uh, being able to write a book that really helps people with this new way of thinking about chronic illness. So that's who I am. How I got here is an unusual journey. And my experience with chronic illness is twofold. First and foremost, my husband was diagnosed with an aggressive brain tumor when I was seven weeks pregnant with our first Mm -hmm. and only child. That was back in April of 2000. So it's quite some time ago. And that really catapulted us into the medical system in a way that in our early 30s at that point, we had never yet experienced. You know, maybe we went to the doctor for a cold or a flu or a this or a that little thing, but all of a sudden we were seriously in the system. And uh, Isamu, my late husband's tumor, was again very aggressive. It's called a glioblastoma multi. It's a stage four brain tumor. He was given about six months to live. We can do the math. I was seven weeks pregnant. He was given six months to live. We were able to sustain his life. So he lived two and a half years, had a good 19 months with our son, who's now 22. Um, But that really woke me up in a lot of ways, not only to the gaps in our medical system, but to how people are treated like their diagnosis and not like the person that they are. So it took me a little bit of time, of course, after he passed away and I was a single parent to realize this was my calling to fill these gaps, to work with people through the challenges in their own healthcare. And ultimately that led to me training uh, other practitioners. And that was a, a long and drawn out journey. And 
through that, I discovered I had chronic illness. So that's the twofold part of this story is that um, I have Hashimoto's. It's very well managed in my life at this point, but discovering that and figuring out what to do were also a huge part of my own journey. First of all, I'm so sorry. I know it's been a long time, but I cannot imagine what that was like. And I'm so grateful he was able to, to stay alive for so long that he could meet your son and be there for you. And you guys could say goodbye. Yes. You know, going through your own journey after all of that and figuring that out, that's that's a bear in and of itself to really to really figure out to for one to figure out what's going on to get the right tests. And we just we all know what that journey looks like and doctor after doctor and all of that. So can you go a little bit more in depth on what you've learned over the process of, you know, obviously founding the school and educating, there's always more science emerging. I mean, especially nutrition science is really in its infancy. I feel like what, even though it's in its infancy, it just keeps reiterating the same foundational principles. But let's talk about your, your approach to chronic illness, how how you train people, but also how you train your patients, right? Absolutely. And then hopefully we can go into the Omics, Omics, I think is how you said Mm -hmm. it. So I would like to go through, let's just kind of walk people through what your process looks like. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about what functional medicine and functional nutrition are first, just to set that stage. So functional medicine was born on the principles of systems biology. There are three primary tenets of a functional practice or should be, and I'm going to say, or should be, because I feel like functional medicine and functional nutrition have gotten away from themselves and away from those core principles. So those core tenets of a functional practice are working in a therapeutic partnership, looking for the root causes, which means we're asking why, not what, not doing a bunch of tests. That's not the way we find the root cause. We're asking why is this happening? Not what is, what do we do about it? And that systems biology. So those are the three primary tenets of a functional practice as was designed in the 1990s when functional medicine was born out of the concepts of a number of practitioners and Dr. Jeffrey Blant, who's a systems biologist. Functional nutrition uses those same principles. And what I've done with those principles is say yes to all three of those core tenants. And how do we work within a different scope of practice, really identifying the core principles of dietary and lifestyle modifications as are true for the individual. It's very individualized. And the science that you're talking about, Marian, for me is the science of the biology. When we understand what's going on in the body, that informs us. So as an example, people with chronic illness are often very familiar with the term leaky gut. And leaky gut was not a common terminology in standards of care. And there would be people who would say, that's not true. Well, if you look at the science, the science tells us about the intense intestines. It tells us about gut permeability, and it shows us how the gut can become hyperpermeable. That then gets the catchphrase, leaky gut. But for me, the science isn't in the emerging evidence. The science is in the physiology. And when we pay heed to the physiology, we actually know why things are happening on our own bodies and as practitioners, how to help somebody because we know what should be happening within the body. And one thing I like to remind patients who have chronic illness, especially when looking at their labs or looking at what's going on for them is there is more working for you than is not. 
Your body is more functional than it's not. Because when we have chronic illness, we tend to feel like we're broken. Nobody can help us. And we're looking and searching and we're caught in this sympathetic dominant quest to find the root, the answer. And the truth is, hey, your body's working for you in more ways than it's not. Let's fortify what it is doing so that the rest can come into balance. So it's kind of flipping the model instead of just focusing on the signs and the symptoms and the quote unquote fix for that. And instead nourishing the soil, which we'll come back to when we talk about my approach to chronic illness. But I wanted to set the stage for what does functional mean or what should it mean? I'm so glad you did that. I have the same approach. Yes. I tend to partner with practitioners, naturopathic doctors, and but always my goal is to just encourage, like, let's just get, give your body what it needs to function optimally, yes. and then it, the body will do the rest. And the diagnosis is literally just naming your symptoms. It's not a, an identity. It's not who you are. It's not something you're stuck with forever. I love that we have that same approach, yes. and I really appreciate you defining it because I have a, you know, I have a lot of interview, you know, a lot of different practitioners coming on the podcast and everybody has a very different approach, right? I always think it's really good to define it for what, how they're viewing things. I don't think any of them are wrong per se, but everybody just has a different approach, a different way of looking at things. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you established that because I think it's really important people going into the rest of this interview, yes, knowing that that's the approach you come from. So thank you for that. So let's move on to how you approach. Yeah. Yeah. So the diagnosis, as you said, like that even doesn't tell us what to do. And I think people think that when we get a diagnosis, we then will know what to do. But when it comes to chronic illness, that is not the case. I'm not dissing modern medicine. Look, it helped my husband a ton. He had two brain surgeries, like he had chemotherapy, radiation, but it's not, it, they don't have a way of working with chronic illness. So even when we get a diagnosis, it doesn't tell us what to do. So what do we do? Here's where we come into my model and where we'll talk about omics a little bit. So what I like to ask people to do is list every sign, symptom, or diagnosis that they have. And the difference between a sign and a symptom, just to take us there, because this is really helpful in speaking to practitioners, is that a sign is something that they can measure. A symptom is not something that they have any touch point with. So often as patients, when we show up at the doctor, we're mixing signs and symptoms. We're saying, I have this rash and I'm tired all the time. I have fatigue, but the doctor can't measure your fatigue. And so that is a different thing. It's a symptom than your signs. So I always like to remind patients, separate your signs and symptoms, and then you're not speaking in a way that they can't hear. They can measure and they can hear. So that's one just recommendation I have. But any sign, symptom, or diagnosis, we can write that down and say, what am I struggling with? Then I like to bring people into this analogy. And it's a very simple analogy. I'm going to ask us to just think through a visual lens for a moment. Imagine you're in a field and you're walking towards a tree 
And this tree is magnificent. You are overcome with the beauty of this tree. And it's the only tree in this field. And as you get closer to this tree, you start to see that some of the branches are not very healthy. The bark is falling off a little bit. Some of the leaves are turning, even though we're in the height of spring in this scenario that we're in. And we are really, like I said, overcome. What do I do to support this tree? And we can think, well, maybe I can get a ladder and just pick off the leaves that are on the tree that are turning brown so I don't have to look at them. Well, that's not going to help for very long. Maybe I can get a ladder and a saw and start to saw off the branches that don't look very healthy. Well, that doesn't really get me where I want to go. So I have to go deeper in the tree, deeper to the trunk, of course, and then to the roots. But I also have the ability to nourish those roots. And where do the roots of the tree live? They live in the soil, in the earth. And so where I'm taking patients and practitioners who are functional nutrition counselors is in not looking for the root, but I will define the three roots that are always common with chronic illness, but looking at the soil that those roots live in. That soil is what I refer to as the circle of influence. So if we think about the practices of Stephen Covey, who talked about the habits of the most successful people, when we are trying to just go for a goal, we have a lot of anxiety. When we don't know how to touch that goal at all and we're out in outer space, we also can have a lot of discomfort or anxiety. When we understand our circle of influence and I'm putting a ring around a circle like an orbit, we actually have ways to touch that inner orbit but not feel like we're having to attack it directly. So my model for any chronic illness is what I call three roots, many branches. All of those signs, symptoms, and diagnoses that we listed are branches. They're not roots. And so just addressing them at that branch level is like getting our ladder or our ladder and our saw and trying to attack it at that level, but we're going to see it crop up elsewhere. So the three roots are always our genes, our digestion, and our inflammation. And if we have a chronic illness, meaning if we are sick and not getting better, that's going to be chronic. Whatever its name is, even if it doesn't have a name, all three of those roots have been activated in some way. So then what do we do about it? We can't change our genes, but we can influence them. We can't change our digestion, but we can influence it. We can't change our inflammation, but we can influence it. So I then have factors, four factors for each of those influences. If you think about a Venn diagram with three circles, those three roots, there's then an orbit around each of those. And we can talk about each of them. The omics for me, Marion, comes in in that digestion realm. And I'm happy to move into that. But each of those for me has an area of science. The epigenetics is for the genes, the omics is for digestion, and precision medicine practices are for the inflammation. And so I'm looking to science, but not in the way that we typically look for what we call evidence-based, because I'm flipping evidence on its head to be out of different kind of evidence, science and physiological evidence, and 
individualized evidence, your evidence, which is different than mine, even if we have the same diagnosis. Yes. I'm so excited to dive into this because this is where it's at. Like truly what I'm thinking of and where I love this paradigm shift is like the way like a lot of influencers are right now is it's very diet based. There's this magic pill diet that's going to solve everything. And it's going to address all three of these in like one magic bullet. And it works for some people, but it doesn't work for a lot. And people give get frustrated and give up. Yep. They're not willing to trust themselves right. and to trust how they feel. So as a, as a coach, my biggest thing is like, this is the foundation, but we have to listen to your body from exactly. here. There's some testing and stuff that we can do to help guide us to make sure we're not we know what your body's responding to or not responding to, and we can guide from there. But at the end of the day, it's how do you feel? Yes. Yeah. I think giving per- people permission to do that is is empowering, but also scary for them. Yes. Like they're empowered and they're scared. And so I I love that you have the same type of approach yes. in that and the way that you have it broken down. So I might want to touch on all three, but let's yes. start with the omics. Because I feel like digestion is like one of those big ones. Like I have a lot of people who join my Facebook group and all these things who are like, I want to learn more about nutrition or I, digestion. I yes. have digestion issues. I have leaky gut, yeah. all of this stuff. And I'm like, well, obviously there's, there's standards and there's foundational things, but it's, it's not like a a one-off like magic pill approach. Exactly. And I want to go back to what you said, Marianne, about the way that we are listening to ourselves or not listening to ourselves. That's a lot of retraining that we have to do. So I talked about the three tenets of a functional practice, functional therapeutic partnership, looking for the roots and that systems biology. So therapeutic partnership for me, isn't just about my relationship with my parents, patient. It's also about a patient's relationship with themselves. In functional medicine, we call these mediators. This is what I know makes me feel better or makes me feel worse. And this is something that I will always ask people, what makes you feel better and what makes you feel worse? What do you know to be your yes, no, maybe foods? There's a lot of information when we start to ask those questions of ourselves and check in. And what makes us feel better might be going to to sleep at nine instead of 11. It may be having more time with family and friends. There's a lot that we can say, these are the things that make me feel better and then anchor on those. And we lose sight of those. And when we, when we look too much for answers in testing, in my opinion, and I love tests, but I only want them when I need more information, we are Mm -hmm. basing how we feel on information that is outside of us on a piece of paper. It's like when we based how we feel on the scale, right? Like, how do you feel in your body? Oh, well, my weight is X, so I feel Y. And that's how we've been trained. We don't have that internal um, interoception, as it's called, where we can feel what's going on with us. So I just wanted to speak to that, which which you brought up so beautifully in terms of like, how do we have this relationship with ourselves? So for me, as a functional medicine nutritionist, we cannot talk about food without talking about digestion. It's a mute point. Like this is where food meets physiology and your digestive system is different than my digestive system. So any diet out there, that's a dietary theory 
means nothing. And this is where nutrition science really falls short. It can tell us about coffee, good or bad, wine, good or bad, grains, good or bad. But that's about a food in isolation. What I want to look at from a functional perspective is how does that food work for you? And how do we shore up the receptacle for the food that is translating that food that you're taking in from outside to the food for yourselves. And that is digestion. So that brings us to both the realm of omics, and I'll share the four influencing factors. But omics reminds us that everything in the body is connected. Omics is about connectivity. So we all know now that the gut is connected to the brain. That's not news to anybody anymore. When I started, it was news. We know that the hormones are connected to the liver, which is connected to digestion. So omics helps us to understand that everything is connected. And my mantra is everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. And that relates to the three different roots. Everything is connected in the body. Any sign or symptom you have, I'm going to see it as part of the whole and what it tells me about other things. And if we're talking about food, which I'm going to do, you're going to do, we have to be optimizing digestion. So the circle of influence around the digestive root is the mechanical, the chemical, the structural, and the microbial. And I think what a lot of people do is skip to the microbial, thinking that the microbiome is going to fix their issues. But you know what? Sleep feeds your microbiome. Exercise feeds your microbiome. What you're eating feeds your microbiome. How you chew and digest your food feeds your microbiome. And when we're building on quicksand and we've missed the opportunity to break down our food and make sure that it's transporting correctly and in the right molecular format, we bypass opportunities to help at that microbial level. And like you said, Miriam, we get frustrated that probiotic everybody's talking about works for my sister, but not for me. Everybody's raving about it in that reel on Instagram, but it's not helping me. It's because it's bigger than that. Everything is connected and we have to look at that. So mechanical, are we chewing our food? Are we chewing our food properly? Are we creating chemically the enzymes we need to break down our food structurally? This brings us back to the leaky gut, but also other structural imbalances that could be in the system that are inflammatory in nature or literally structural in nature, whether it's diverticulitis or diverticulosis. Do we have a gallbladder? All of those things have to be part of what we are looking at for our own individual nutrition needs. But start, please, with chewing. Yes. Most people do not chew their food. We're I all think guilty, part of that right? comes. All- oh yeah. <laughs> I know. I scarf down my food too. I used to be like the slowest eater as a kid. And then I got this job that like wouldn't let us have lunch breaks and stuff. So we'd sneak out when he was like going to the bathroom or with a client or something. And I learned how to eat in like five minutes oh. um, my, and my digestion totally suffered yeah. for it. Um, and I feel like like all the, you know, I think of all of my clients and all my friends who eat at their desks, 
who don't like to take lunch breaks. Yes. I think about clients and I'm like, just take 15 minutes to just sit and focus on your food, turn your phone off, turn your laptop off. Like, but I have to work. And I'm like, you take 15 minutes to go poop. Like you can take 15 minutes to eat your lunch. Right. But most people don't know that the chewing actually starts the digestive process. Yes. And the more, and you know, and then also like we have such weak jaws, especially for kids, we we want their jaws to develop. So we want them chewing on things. We don't want to give them soft crackers and soft fruit and all of these, you know, soft chicken nuggets and all these things that we have, these processed foods. We want them eating real food. We want them chewing. Yes. All of that stuff. And there's actually enzymes in the mouth that that also trigger the enzymes in your stomach. It triggers Correct. your gallbladder to empty, yep. which means you're less likely to get gallbladder sto- stones if it's emptying. Yes. And so all these problems that people are having. And so there's always like this ideal number and it's uh, it always varies. Yeah. But the point is chew your food until it's, it, it's chewed. Yes. You exactly. don't want to be swallowing big chunks of food. If you wait, and I know people who literally might have breakfast at 10 and then don't eat again until seven o'clock at night and then they scarf it down. Well, yeah, yes. you're hungry. Yes. You know, and your blood sugar is low and you're trying to compensate as quickly as possible. Yes. And and it's just this vicious circle of not only are you on a blood sugar roller coaster, which also impacts your digestion. Correct. Like it's just all of these things. So yes. when it comes to chewing, is do you feel like there's a magic number? No, I'm no? so okay. not about the numbers and the rules. I feel that makes like, me so happy. <laughs> just with the like what you brought up with the diet culture and how there's such a shift right now. Like it's a, it's a it's a funny time to be a nutritionist because there's a lot in the realm as there should be about body positivity and about anti diet culture. I think it should be anti dieting culture. I think we have to recognize there are things that we can all do to support our bodies and our brains if we want to. If that's something, if you don't feel good and you want to feel better, there are always opportunities and they don't have to be intense and short. They can be long lived. And so I feel like when we make things too hard, that's where we then fail and then get angry at that way of doing it as opposed to living with it. So you said it beautifully, Marianne, and just in terms of stepping away from your desk or focusing on your food for a moment, sometimes if you can't focus on food changes, that's the way to do it. Just focus on supporting your digestion, giving your body a little love. I want to say this too. You and I are what I would consider moderates. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's not very popular. I feel like diet culture has made people want the short and intense and lots of rules. And they feel like if they don't have that, they're not going to make progress. Yeah. Right. I just feel like I'm not moderate, but sustainable. (laughs) Like I'm like, let's give you a way of having a sustainable result. And it's going to look different for different people based on their history, their experience with dieting. And it's, it's, not subscribing to tight rules is Mm -hmm. less about moderation and more about like living. I mean, I just got back from Iceland and my assistant was asking me today, like, how do you travel and eat? I'm like, I don't even think about it now. It's so easy for me to manage a, what some people might think of as a restricted diet on the road because it's my way of life. It's not a diet. It's Mm -hmm. how I live and what I live by. And I know you too, Marion. And it's just, that's what changes it. So I don't feel like I'm living in some woe is me restricted place. I'm living. Yep. 
Actually, I just got back that's... from Iceland. <laughs> living. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I feel the exact same way as yeah. you, but I've been told that I'm moderate <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, well, is, if it's if sustainable means moderate, then I guess that's what I am. But like you're gonna, I'm gonna be the one you're coming to in three in in eighteen months to two years when all these diets have failed and you just exactly. want to be healthy. Yes, you know. And I'm like, so I'm like, you know. And I did that route. Like yes. I tried all the different diets until yeah. I just realized what's sustainable for me. And I do have to have a semi restricted diet due to food allergies and things like that. Yes, but the, I don't look at it that way. Like I forget how hard how hard quote unquote yeah. it is. Because it's just how I live. Like, I don't think about eating meat and vegetables and fruit and butter and things as restrictive. It's just how I eat and how I feel my best. And that's my goal. You know, that's our goal for everybody. But I can, but people see it as, well, how is that going to work if there's not rules? Right. You know, and I'm like, well, you have, I mean, there's foundational principles. Yes, there's principles. You have to That's learn what I how say. to eat. You have to learn how to eat real food, which is where yes. I come in. I have recipes and yeah, meal plans. Yeah, I love that. Like just to kind of to give people a, a launching point. I'm always yes. like, this is just short term to show you what it looks like. And then yeah. you're going to play around with it and find what works best for you. Of course. And it's that permission to do that and all that. But it is seen as moderate. And it is seen as like, well, how is it going to work if I don't have all these rules? But this is what works long term. Yes, so exactly. you can try all these things which is fine. We're all on our own health journey, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to find what's sustainable. Yeah. And it can be damaging to the psyche to be on these very restrictive protocols that you don't know why you're doing it. If it works for you taking gobbles of supplements, because that's what's being recommended and not even understanding what's necessary for your own body. And this is where I just feel like we've lost our way Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of the healthcare and popular media and even functional medicine and functional nutrition. It's like, it's one thing and it's not, I can work with two people with Crohn's disease. One is an 80 year old woman. One's an eight year old boy. You better believe Like you said, there's going to be some foundational principles we're working towards, but there's going to be a lot of differences based on their history, how long their body has been in an inflammatory state, what kind of situations they have to be in socially, their family, their ability to support themselves, who's providing that support. All of that matters to me in terms of what we create for the individual. And I think that gets lost when we're trying these really hardcore protocols thinking that they're going to be the fix. Yep. I completely agree. And I wanted to talk about something. Let's talk about gaslighting Mm -hmm. in the medical world. I mean, this this happens even, I see it in the functional integrative world as well. And I know a lot of people, especially with chronic illness, have experienced this. So I would love to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's big gaslighting and there's little gaslighting. So I don't want to uh, ignore the situations that a lot of people who are living in uh, underprivileged societies or have access to healthcare experience in their gaslighting, whether it's the size of their body or the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or gender orientation. There is a lot of gaslighting that can happen depending on who we are and where we live. When we have a chronic condition, something that doesn't easily fall into the diagnose and prescribe mentality, it typically takes some time and a number of doctors, which you alluded to earlier, 
to get to a place where we even know or understand what's going on. And that time can be very dismissive. And I'm going to call that gaslighting. So that is the case where we know something's not right. We keep going and asking for help. We might be told it's all in our head, or if we just lost this many pounds or whatever it is, when we know something isn't right. And this is another thing that takes us out of that interoception. We're trying to trust our bodies, but nobody's hearing or understanding. There's all sorts of gaslighting. So I just want to even say like, for me, when I started to feel this is before I was a practitioner. So this is after my husband died. But before I put myself back through school, something was shifting in my body. I now know it was my thyroid. But I couldn't get anybody to look at it because I didn't look like there were thyroid issues. So while my husband was ill, we changed our diet. I was already a foodie living in the Bay Area at the time. So we changed our diet significantly. It's changed for me since then. We changed it for him and what his needs were. But that meant that I was already doing a lot of healthy things for myself. And so it was masking the severity of the illness because I wasn't in the inflamed state that I might have been if I wasn't already taking care of myself in those ways. So I was in searching for a solution. And the assumption that was made about my situation is that I had adrenal issues because I had gone through the illness and the death of my husband. So it must be adrenal. And that was the diagnosis to sure, you know, we go through like adrenal fatigue, SIBO, we think like, oh, these are the things, that's what it is. Everybody gets labeled with that. And so I kept coming forward saying that's not what I'm experiencing. They would give me recommendations and prescriptions, even if they were nutraceuticals with naturopaths, and they would feel horrible. And I'd be like, this isn't this isn't what's working for me. Well, you just need to rest more. Well, you just need, and it was based on an assumption based on not my personal experience. Ultimately, I was able to uncover for myself that there was a thyroid issue and finally get a doctor to validate what I was finding and seeing. But that was several years and it was very frustrating. And that, as well-intentioned as it was, even with a naturopath, was gaslighting because I was raising my hand saying, that's not my situation. And that was being ignored. I would hope to never do that for somebody because everybody's reality is what I want to honor, their story, their reality, and help them to find the answers. So gaslighting can look like a number of things, but I think when we have a chronic illness, we often experience it and it uh, it it leads to us losing trust with the system and the providers, which is unfortunate because we don't then feel like we're in a therapeutic partnership. We've lost that core tenant. So that's what gaslighting is in the medical field. And I think we, we have all experienced it in some little or major way. And then I think there's things that we can do when we come out of that situation, which can feel pretty icky coming out of a situation like that. 
Right. Absolutely. Um, and us and all of us in the chronic illness world, we've all experienced that because it's not cut or cut and dry. And I feel like that also leads to us not trusting ourselves. So we can't right. trust the doctors. We can't trust the supplements. We almost don't trust the food because it's been so restrictive and didn't help. Right. And we can't trust ourselves. And it just leaves us in this state of almost we know that we, we have to believe we can get better, but you feel so hopeless Yes, in that. And those of us who are finally able to get to the other side, we just decide we're not going to settle. Right. And we, we own our health and we just start doing research and we start trying. And eventually we find somebody who can help us validate what we found. Yes. And, and then we're able to grow from there. Yes. I think that that's where the therapeutic partnership really comes into place. But at the end of the day, the, the, the doctors, the naturopaths, the, the supplements, the things cannot fix us. We have Correct. to do it ourselves. Yeah. And we're not broken, right? Like no. this is what I yeah. really just, I, I feel like we've forgotten how to be patients. And this is for me where that circle of influence comes back into the picture because we're trying in our quest to try to find answers. We start playing practitioner and we start taking supplements that might not be right for our body because they've been recommended. We start doing those diets because, and we have to experiment. I don't want to say that we shouldn't experiment. I just think it should be broken down into smaller chunks that help us to learn about ourselves and be better patients and be able to communicate as a patient to that therapeutic partner who can bring in their expertise. So um, it feels unfortunate to me that so many patients are having to play provider for themselves. And I don't fault patients at us for Mm -hmm. that, but I don't know that it's actually helping us on a number of levels, psychologically in its quest and sympathetic dominant state and physiologically in we might not know if that's the right thing for us for a number of reasons. People are self-diagnosing, self-prescribing when there's other things we could be doing like sleep, rest, figure out what helps you poop better and what doesn't help you poop better. Like tune in to what might feel like it's basic, but is your best way to be your best advocate in the times between your doctor's visits. Mm-hmm. And then work with someone like you or those that I train that are inserted in those gaps between yeah. the doctor's visits to help you make sense of the weeds that you're sitting in. Yeah. And that is where we come in. We we do come in and, and fill those gaps yes. um, in care. And, and I feel like a lot of my job is validating and yeah. giving permission and reminding, hey, like you're only sleeping five hours. Yes. And I find like, even for myself, if I go to bed around eight thirty nine 9 o'clock, I will sleep all night yes. and feel, and feel great. But if I go to bed at 10, my sleep is intermittent and Correct. I wake up tired, yep. you know, and it's just a very interesting and very interesting thing. And it's like lifestyle matters just as much, if not more Thousand than percent. nutrition, you know? And it's like, I always tell people it's like a piece of the piece of the pizza. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. Like nutrition is just a slice. It's Correct. not half of the pizza or anything like that. 
Let me just piggyback on that for a minute. Yeah. There's another system. So I have three systems that I work with. Three roots, many branches is one. Another one is what I call three tiers to nutrition mastery. Personally, I think of it as three tiers to epigenetic mastery, but we'll call it three tiers to nutrition mastery. Tier one are what I call the non-negotiables. And I'm sure you have your non-negotiables. My non-negotiable trifecta, and it's just the trifecta, but then there's more non-negotiables for each of us. That non-negotiable trifecta is sleep poop, and blood sugar balance. If you don't have those in place, you are building on an unsteady foundation. And like you said, five hours of sleep doesn't feed our microbiome. It doesn't help with our blood sugar. Like it's all connected again. It's those omics back at us again. And so focusing on and prioritizing our sleep. And like you said, Marion, knowing your patterns. So like you, if I go to sleep, before 10, I go to sleep easily. So my latency period is good. And I stay asleep more. If I go to sleep after 10, I have a harder time falling asleep because my cortisol is on its uprise, right? So I'm not catching the wave of sleep that is true for me. And so I think that we have to, this is where we can be better patients. We have to say, where can I focus my attention while I'm waiting for more information, while I'm looking for what to do next? Where can I look at what's happening for me? Where can I make a difference? And again, that can be bite-sized too. If you go to sleep at midnight because you get your second wind and the kids are asleep, how do you recognize, wait, even though that feels good in the short term, it's not fueling my health and healing journey. How do I back that up? What can I do to create an environment for myself around sleep that allows me to release and be held and secure and feel like I can get the restoration and detoxification because sleep is one of our best ways of detoxifying that I can. It's a great place to focus. I love that. I love the tangible. And that just feels, I feel like even that can feel so overwhelming for people, which is why we say like, focus on one. Yeah. Right. Like if you can, I would say sleep is probably the most more important than exercise, more important than diet. Like if we can get your sleep good, then that's going to positively impact every other thing you're going to try down the road. I single mom, same boat, right? Like I totally understand the second wind or just that's the only time you have to get stuff done. So you have to sacrifice your sleep. But what I found through that, for one, I got totally burnt out. I did have adrenal fatigue. (laughs) I have to recover from that. But I found that if I woke up early, Mm -hmm. I was way more productive than if I stayed up late. Me being well-rested led towards just a better day for all parties involved. Thousand percent. And it is, it does go back to knowing your body. And so I know some people who think they're late night people. Right. And I'm like, but you're only getting five hours of sleep because you still have to wake up early. So what if you tried consistently getting seven hours? I'm not asking for much more. Like I'm not asking for nine or 10, but like, what if we just kind of shifted that? Like, what if you put your kids to bed, to bed a half hour earlier right? and gave you that much more time? I think the bite-sized nature of that is really helpful. So we have sleep. 
We have, what was the next Sleep, poop, and blood sugar balance are the non-negotiable trifecta. We're each going to have our own non-negotiables beyond that. Your non-negotiable may be around not eating gluten or, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure that you get this much water in a day, whatever it is. But if we don't have those in place, physiologically, literally people are taking probiotics and sleeping five hours a night. And trying to do detoxes and cleanses and sleeping five hours a night. And what I'm telling you is physiologically, you will feed your microbiome by sleeping. You will help with your detoxification. Your hormones will be better balanced, but this is a risk reward conversation. And this is what I like to look at with patients is how are you thinking about the risk reward of staying up late? So I hear you, Andrea, telling me that here's the reward of going to sleep earlier, that my body's going to do better, that I'm going to feel better, that it contributes to my healing. But the risk is that I lose that alone time. I lose that time when I think I'm productive. And then we have a conversation to have, like you said, we start to say like, okay, that's a reward that we want to honor. We don't want to take away your alone time. Maybe we shift it to a different place. Maybe there's other ways to get that. And in this bite-sized way, we start to build the sustainable practices that help us to do what I call taking care, like literally take it. It is yours to take, but we're giving it away to too many other theories, modalities, practitioners, when some of our self-care is what we have to take for ourselves. And that's a risk-reward conversation all the time. We're making risk-reward, cost-benefit conversations with ourselves all the time. So if there is a reward that you get from spending time with your family and eating what they're all eating, how do you appreciate that reward without the risk of feeling icky the next day? That becomes how we start to think through what's true for you. And it's going to be different for each of us. But if you're not sleeping, you're not pooping, and your blood sugar is not balanced. And we're almost out of time. So I want to talk about poop really quick. Yeah. Because I think some people think once a week is plenty. (laughs) I've literally heard that. No, I know. I know. It's so crazy. But there are people who think that once a week is totally normal and how it is. So I really think we need to clarify that really quick. Yes. Yeah. So you want to be pooping at least once a day, ideally one to three times a day. It should be easy to pass and full. And we want to be tracking if we're able to see what helps us to eliminate more easily. There's then things we can be doing on our own, like making making sure we're hydrated and eating the appropriate amount of fiber for our own bodies. There isn't a gram or an amount. It's just what's true for you. And tracking and finding out, like when you hear me say that, you should be pooping at least once a day, three times would be great. Are there days when you poop better than others? What can you learn from tracking what's true for you that helps you to make steps forward without taking something other than your hydration, your, you know, fibrous foods, uh, just as a, you know, uh, takeaway, one of my core principles around food is fat, fiber, and protein. If we're eating all three at every meal, that should start to help with what we see in our tracking and our elimination. Okay. 
Thank you for clarifying that because I think that that's really, really important. (laughs) I remember back in college, it kind of cracks me up. My best friend was like, you poop more than anybody I know. And it was one (laughs) to three times a day. And I was like, "Uh, uh, okay, that's weird. I never would have thought about that. (laughs) Girls in our friendships, right? Yes. And then as I as I moved into, you know, holistic health on, on my own journey and then working with clients and realizing, wow, it really isn't common for people to know that for one, that's normal. Right. And what people and people who think that once a week is, is is the norm. And I was just I was completely blown away. So I'm, I'm so yes. glad that we talked about that, because I think that knowing yes. what the normal is and then. And then giving people that little bit of, you know, fat fiber protein every meal, you're going, you'll see how it impacts you and you'll be able to play around with ratios and things like that and how you feel your best. Awesome. This conversation has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if people want to reach out to you or follow you, learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, if you go to andrianakiyama.com, that will lead you back to the Functional Nutrition Alliance and the training and the clinic there and to my podcast, The 15-Minute Matrix, which is for practitioners, but also nice and bite-sized for uh, patients as well, and any of the writing that I'm doing that's patient-focused now. So andrianakiyama.com or andrianakiyama on all the socials will lead you to all the different places. Awesome. Thank you. And I'll have all that information in the show notes because I'm sure people are like, ah, how do you spell Nakiyama? Yeah, always. So that'll be in the show notes for everybody, but I definitely wanted to put it out there as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been wonderful, and I'm just so grateful to have you on. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. It's so important. You too. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review, sharing a screenshot on social media, or sharing the link with a friend? By you sharing what you've learned, others are able to find this podcast and join our community. Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com for over 160 delicious recipes a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health dash coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.